Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. To wrap up our August lineup, we're delighted to bring you this special interview with Michelle Cox, the mystery and historical fiction author of A Girl Like You and A Ring of Truth. Also, I'll be reading to you from our Carrick Publishing Anthology, EFD1, Starship Good Words. The story for this week will be Family Recipe by award-winning author and dear friend Catherine Estolfo, Carrick Publishing 2012. For our September lineup, on the 2nd, we'll be bringing you an interview with author B.R. Statham, A Taste of Old Revenge and There Are No Innocents. Our Readers on the Run short story will be Invasion by Donna Carrick from North on the Yellowhead, Carrick Publishing. On September 9th, we'll bring you an interview with Kate Raphael, Murder Under the Bridge, and the short story will be Cover Girl, a flash fiction piece by Melody Campbell from World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. On the 16th, we'll bring you a chat with Joan Hicks Boone, The Best Girl, and our short story will be Axe Husband by yours truly, Donna Carrick, from North on the Yellowhead, Carrick Publishing. On the 23rd, we'll bring you an interview with author Tina Wolfe of Exacting Justice, and our short story will be Runaway by Joan O'Callaghan from World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. And to wrap up the month of September, on the 30th, we'll bring you an interview with true crime author Nate Henley, and he has a new book out titled The Boy on the Bicycle. And the short story reading for that day is still to be determined. Please help us to continue to bring you new and established authors. Podcasters rely heavily on your feedback and support. This is a not-for-profit endeavor, but you can help simply by subscribing absolutely free at your favorite podcast platform. We're available at iTunes and at Google Play, and we'll soon be loading all of these episodes up on YouTube as well, so watch for that. While you're there, be sure to share some love. A good rating can really help more of our podcast interviewees to reach their readers by moving us up in the rankings. Thanks for doing this. It means a great deal to us here at Dead to Rights and Carrick Publishing, bringing you outstanding author tips, writing content, and short stories is our genuine goal. It's been a heck of a news week, no doubt about it. Indictments and convictions, guilty pleas and immunities have been competing with secret recordings for airtime. I have to say right up front, I despise corruption and subterfuge. I've had to hit the wait and see button several times recently and have put it on lock for the time being. With stunning headlines smacking us down on an almost hourly basis, it's important to remember to engage in normal activities, like reading on the beach, for example. I want to send a big thank you and a shout out to true crime author Nate Henley. My beach read this week, yes, good people who may be stuck in the city, I did spend the past week on the beach, was The Boy on the Bicycle by Nate Henley, Five Rivers Publishing. The Boy on the Bicycle came out on August 1st and is available at Amazon in print or Kindle edition. This was a fast and fascinating read, delving into a case of wrongful conviction in my own city of Toronto. 
1956, 14-year-old Ronald Moffat was arrested for the brutal murder of 7-year-old Wayne Mallett, whose body was found on the ground of the Canadian National Exhibition on Toronto's Lakeshore. Comprised of actual conversations with Ron Moffat, police file documents, interviews, original news stories, reports, books, and documentaries, this is a compelling tale of how wrongful conviction, false confession, and flawed police procedure can conspire to mimic guilt in the innocent. As a longtime fan of true crime, this was a story I was aware of, but hadn't previously researched. Henley's telling of the tale is crisp and clear, with compassion for all of the victims, both the murdered children and the man who spent a year of his youth behind bars, blemished for life by another man's crimes. I highly recommend this book to all lovers of true crime genre. Listeners may recall that Nate Henley was our guest on Dead to Rights back in early February. We're hoping to have him back this fall to talk about his new book, The Boy on the Bicycle. Stay tuned and we'll let you know for sure when the date is firmed up. And now I'd like to introduce you to this week's guest, author Michelle Cox. Michelle is the author of the multiple award-winning Henrietta and Inspector Howard series, as well as Novel Notes of Local Lore, a weekly blog dedicated to Chicago's forgotten residents. She suspects she may have once lived in the 1930s and, having yet to discover a handy time machine lying around, has resorted to writing about the era as a way of getting herself back there. Coincidentally, her books have been praised by Kirkus, Library Journal, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and many others, so she might be on to something. Unbeknownst to most, Michelle hoards board games she doesn't have time to play and is, not surprisingly, addicted to period dramas and big band music. Also, Marmalade. So let's give a big Dead to Rights welcome to Michelle Cox. Good morning, Michelle, and welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today? Great, thank you. Good, good. Thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. Now, for those who don't know, Michelle Cox is the award-winning writer of the Henrietta and Inspector Howard Romantic Mystery Series, which is published by She Writes Press, and um, I think that's Clive Howard. Is that right? Clive, yes. Okay. And I think you've got three books in the series, uh, terrific titles, A Girl Like You, A Ring of Truth, and A Promise Given. They're historical novels, um, I believe set in approximately 1935 Chicago, is that right? That's right, correct. Excellent. Well, can you tell us about the first book in that series, A Girl Like You? Sure. Um, A Girl Like You is... um it's actually based on a woman um, that I met in a nursing home, and um, so part of it, part of the story, is it has some true factors, which are kind of neat to reveal. But um, overall, it's a it's about a young girl whose um, father has committed suicide, and um, the mother is chronically depressed, and she 
Henrietta is the oldest of, I think it's eight children. And so it kind of falls on her to go out into Depression-era Chicago and try to um, find a job, make a living for them. So um, she takes a job as a taxi dancer in the dance club, and um, after a few weeks there, the uh, dance matron turns up murdered, and then Inspector Clive Howard appears on the scene, and it sort of goes from there. So um, they get to know each other, and um, there's sort of a dynamic, of course, that's between them, and he convinces her to go undercover for him. So So that's sort of the, 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 the quick premise. Yeah, so they are mysteries, and they are also romantic, and they're also historical, so they're pulling three elements in together. And I have to tell you, when I was researching to speak with you, I, the covers of these books are just beautiful. I'm, they're really evocative oh. of the time and place. Um, Thank you. Yeah, for those of us who were lucky enough to know their grandmothers like I was, my grandmother raised three children during that very era um, East Coast ah. Canada and so the era the whole depression period is also a fascinating period to set a novel um, what can you tell us about your setting the Chicago your hometown and how important is that setting and what do you do to keep it realistic well um, yeah I'm actually a transplant from a very small town on the, the Illinois-Iowa border. I came to Chicago for college and uh, then stayed. But I have a real affinity, um, I don't know why, but to um, Chicago and to Chicago history. And it, it, Chicago is such a neat town because there's, it, there's so many um, little pockets, little mm-hmm. neighborhoods. And when I worked at the nursing home on the northwest side, I got to know that area very, very well. And um, so a lot of the stories that I heard over and over and over again from these people were all about those neighborhoods. And Mm -hmm. so I really think that that contributed to me being able to depict the era and the place very realistically. Mm -hmm. And then you you have that, you know, the whole um, mob Al Capone thing going on in the background and that that doesn't really play into the books and not really noir but they you know it that that shadow is is always there. It lends a backdrop so doesn't it, it yeah how could it not yes, really. Exactly. Yeah. And what's kind of a little bit of a twist is that you know when we get to book two <laughs> um that's the setting sort of expands a little bit and it moves out into the northern suburbs the very wealthy wealthy suburbs and Mm -hmm. so um i I don't think i'm revealing too much because i think you can read this on the back of the book that um clive howard the 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 cop the detective um hasn't been completely honest with uh her in the first book and he is actually from this very wealthy family on the north shore and he is you know, working as a cop in the city. And so Henrietta is really torn because obviously she's coming from a very impoverished family. Um, She's struggling and you have the sort of the grit of the city in the first book, but then um, it sort of opens up to her and it's not exactly what she, you know, thinks it's going to be. And and Clyde himself is very reluctant. You know, there's a reason why he's working as a cop in the city instead of, you know, lounging around in the in the northern suburbs. So right. there, there's that sort of whole dynamic comes into the second book, too. It sounds to me like you've really 
pulled in these elements very seamlessly. Um, the the elements of class differences, for example, which in the Western world here in Canada and where you are in the U.S., we don't like to talk about class. We like to think we're class-free, but it, it's never true. In particular, in oh, difficult sure. financial times, it's really not true in those times, is it? No, no, and that's really... Um... The second book especially is really tries to capture that whole element of the haves and the have-nots. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it doesn't really talk about the, the, the middle class, if there was even a middle class in the Depression. It, it's, it's really all about, you know, people living in real poverty and then mm -hmm. people living in, you know, huge mansions. Yes. And it's not exactly the Cinderella story you think it is. I mean, there's, there's good and bad in, in each place, as we all know. Yes, yes, of course. Um, I, I know that, you know, when we look at our lifelines, I don't like to call them bloodlines, because these days, families, I mean, our, our family is definitely mixed and doesn't have all the same blood. But um, when we look at our lifelines and the things that influence us going backwards, I always think of my father's mother, who raised three children during the Depression alone because her husband had got given up and gone off to chase the ponies, basically. Um, and the strength of character that it took to live in those times, uh, it just amazing. And I, I really do think that it, it has had a huge impact. Those stories have had a huge impact on myself and my, my sister. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before in, um, different articles that I've written that, you know, I was always the kid that was listening to all the old stories. I just have this fascination with the past. And I could listen to my parents or my grandparents tell the same stories over and over. And that, that, that you're right. I mean, how can that not affect you? Mm -hmm. I mean, my, speaking of the depression too, like my great grandparents had a farm and in that, you know, Illinois, Iowa border area, and they, um, during the Depression, the story goes that they were uh, going to lose the farm, but they were able to make the mortgage payment because of the pennies that my great-grandmother saved by selling eggs in town. Wow. That, those pennies were enough that she saved, scraped them, scraped them, scraped them to pay the mortgage. So I, I mean, hope you're, I hope you're working that into one of your novels at some point because that's a really, really great story. That's yeah, yeah, you know, real, real courage from those those days. Real, um, a force of character, as you said, and yeah. there's there's so much richness there to tap into. Yes, and actually that leads me to, to one of the big questions because I hadn't been asking authors this question and it's one that really fascinates me is how you world build. And for stories like yours, uh, the three books, A Girl Like You, A Ring of Truth, and A Promise Given, you've got to build that world because even though you know Chicago, you don't know Chicago 1935 and you've got to build it and you've got to, you've got to know it in order to present it. What do you do to ensure that your world building and your backdrop for your characters is realistic as can be? Well, a lot of it is, you know, just retaining stories or, um, going to look at old buildings or going to those neighborhoods and trying to, um, 
transport yourself back. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot published as well. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of um, first person stories or narratives that uh, people had written about their neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and those um, each of the neighborhoods, like Jefferson Park or um, Palmer Square or Logan Square have a historical society and I was able to tap into those and you know read some of those documents look at old maps look at old photos Mm -hmm. and also there's a website Encyclopedia of Chicago which has been really really helpful and um you know I know from reading that something that seems to really capture people's attention is descriptions of food and clothes mm-hmm. and fashion is not my forte so I have read and purchased a lot of books on fashion from that era and that's been really fascinating and I, so I, I feel like I was able to um, be tr- pretty true to um, you know sort of the high fashion of the era when when Henrietta gets exposed to, you know, Clive's world. Mm-hmm. And also looking up old um, old recipes from just different recipe sites and, and vintage um, recipe collections, that was really fun too. And try to weave some of that into, um, you know, the book. Or, or, you know, just going back to stories from, you know, I, my gram, a different grandmother came to Chicago as a young girl to be a governess because they were so impoverished, and um, she would tell stories of eating a radish sandwich. Oh, <laughs> like, dear. <laughs> I can't even that's imagine that's that. Terrible. I love radishes. But, you know, but... just trying to take some of those details and weave it into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the imagery really shows on your covers. It does. The, the sense of the visual, the fashion, I mean... It's just, they're really gorgeous. I can't say enough about those covers. And um, talking with you really makes me want to read the books. So I'm definitely going to be buying them. I hope that our listeners will too. Um, Now, do you do a lot of networking, Michelle? Oh, tons. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the name of the game, right? Where do you find your tribe? Who are your peeps? Do you have like a Chicago Sisters in Crime or... Anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I'm part of the Chicago Sisters in Crime. I'm also part of a huge um, a network just within my um, that's available to authors um, that have published with She Writes Press. So we have our own little private um, Facebook forum. And when I signed the contract, they, I was told that that was one of the perks of, of publishing with She Writes Press is that, you know, you have this huge community um, and I thought at the time, you know, like, oh, yeah, okay, didn't count that as anything. And now I feel like uh, that has been huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just talking to so many other different authors who are published with other publishers, traditional or none or whatever, um, I've come to find out how really rare that is. Yeah. And um, those women are very supportive, and we bounce ideas off each other, and so that has been great. I mean, I could go on and on about that, but um, I've also tried to sort of break into the the local, uh, you know, Chicago authors um, sort of tribe, and particularly the mystery writers. And mm-hmm. so that's been fun, doing different events with people and um, just networking. I try to go to a lot of conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that's another great way to just meet people and, and sorry what conferences are you thinking of attending in the oh. upcoming upcoming conferences I'm going to be attending the Chanticleer um, awards conference that's out in um, Bellingham mm-hmm. uh, Washington outside of Seattle and I'm up actually Ring of Truth so that's book two is up for three awards Mm-hmm. One for romance, one for historical fiction, and one for mystery. So I'm, you know, fingers crossed. Last year, yeah, that um, is really brilliant. Congratulations! I had no idea that. Thanks. And because, as I pointed out at the beginning, it really does cross those three genres. That is terrific that it's been nominated in all three categories. Thanks. Yeah, and a girl like you actually um, has picked up a lot of I think it's 12 indie awards so far and it's one in all three categories in different um, contests too so it's great because it really the, the books really do cross genre but that makes it sometimes a little hard to market yeah yeah I could see that be, oh sorry yeah I was just gonna say I'm also gonna be at Boucher Con again this year in Florida and I'm also thinking oh and um Magna Cum Murder in Indianapolis Okay. What is what are the dates for BoucherCon this year? Do you know? Yeah, let me see. It's in um, St. Petersburg, Florida, this year, and I think it's September. Yeah, it's September fifth through the ninth. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. So, people, you can look for Michelle Cox at BoucherCon this year. Um, now, before I let you go, I want to ask you about any tips that you've got for writers, in particular new writers, and, and please feel free to go into any area, whether it's marketing, networking, writing, world building, anything that really struck you as something that maybe was a little difficult to learn and you'd like to pass it on. Wow, that's a big topic. It is, isn't um, it? Well, in terms of, I would start with just, in terms of writing, my advice would be uh, that it's really a discipline. Um, it's like exercise. Nobody feels, wakes up every morning and feels like exercising. It's something you just have to make yourself do. And um, I write every every single day. So there's no breaks. And it doesn't matter if I feel inspired that day or not. So mm-hmm. that would be my advice is, you just have to keep at it, and it, it, you really have to make it into a discipline. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I would also talk, say it, it, it's, it really is important to explore all of your publishing options. I'm with a hybrid press, and I love it. I wouldn't have done it any other way. Um, there's a lot of advantages to it. But, you know, there's I, I would just caution people to keep your keep your eyes open because there's a there's so much opportunity in publishing right now mm-hmm. which is you know could be a good or a bad thing yeah so on the publishing front I would say that and thirdly I would say that once you do have a, a product a, a, a book out there um, it's essential whether you're published with the big five or not this is kind of the going um, thought right now is you have to hire some kind of a publicist to um, sell yourself beyond, you know, your little local um, Mm -hmm. network. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really, really key. That's really good advice. And that's, that's uh, advice that hasn't really been given. So you've got to be able to reach people globally. Yes, yes, exactly. And I mean, many of us have, have been doing that through social media 
Um, in fact, one of the things that Alec and I used to do with Carrick Publishing is we used to give workshops on using social media. But of course, social media has gone through such upheavals and uh, logarithm changes and things like that. I'm not sure that it's as useful as it once was for that, for that platform building. Um, I think it's still essential to have that social media presence, a strong one, but I, I don't know that it is the end-all, be-all that it once was. No, it's definitely, you definitely need a presence, and you definitely need to work it and, um, you know, be available to readers, and, um, but just doing that, like you said, it, it, it's just not enough. Yeah. Do you get out to book signings at all? Is that something that you get involved in? Oh, yeah, I do lots of book signings. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of if I have any coming up. Um, I might have one. You know, they're, they're sprinkled a little bit. I was, with the first two, the release of the first two books, I was doing, um, you know, multiple events a month. Mm -hmm. And that was great and exciting. And I was, I traveled all over the U.S. Mm -hmm. doing um, signings and, and talking about the books. And this, for the release of book three, I'm kind of pulling back a little bit. I still have some in the works, but again, this is the advice I'm getting from my publicist is that I should be switching to doing some sort of like live, um, book events on Twitter or Facebook. And that right. has been really gaining popularity right. because it's so hard to get people to come out yeah, that's the thing, isn't event. it? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That really is the thing, isn't it? It's very hard to get people motivated to to be an audience for for the work. And, um, you know, people are very interested still in being online. So I do still think that there is a, a value to that online social media presence. Um, when Alec and I first started getting into it, we were very involved in Twitter in particular. Um, things like write, write Chat with Julie and... Um, you know, oh, right. that sort of thing. I mean, we were always involved in that. And then we, we sort of pulled back a little bit um, because the algorithms of everything started to change. We, we found that when we would do something on Facebook in particular, you could do one thing and it would be seen by so many people. And then you could do another thing very similar and no one would see it, you know, so it... Yeah. Yeah, so the whole platform status became just a little bit discouraging. Um, maybe now with all the upheaval that the social media groups are going through, things might come back for the average user, you know? Yeah, it's so hard to predict. And like you're saying, even when you think you, you have a handle on it, then, yeah, the algorithm changes. Mm -hmm. And what they're, you know, telling me now is that you really have to put some money behind it as a, you know, a boost or a, a paid ad yes. for it to really reach any kind of a, a sizable audience. I'm finding that, so too. that's what I've been doing. Yeah, yeah, I'm finding that, too, that you do have to put some money behind it. And that's frustrating because you put so many hours of work into building that network, you know. But but what can you do? You work with what you've got, you know. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah, is terrific. Sure. And I, I can honestly tell you I'm going to be going and buying these books because they do look wonderful to me. I'm not uh, historically a big fan of romantic, but I do love mystery. And I love... Ooh. 
I love the the in you know what I see online the interplay between Henrietta and Clive uh, does look very interesting to me and the historical aspects too so I hope I can really encourage our listeners to look these up Michelle Cox what is your website address it is michellecoxwrites.com Michelle Cox writes and Michelle you spell Michelle with two L's don't you Okay, good, good, because people need to find you, you know. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I hope you um, get a chance to pick them up. Book four is coming out next spring. And the title of book four, and again, then, I know you mentioned it, but one more time. Well, book three comes out uh, the, this month, and that is A Promise Given. Mm-hmm. And then book four comes out uh, spring of 2019, and that is A Veil Removed. And we've just started you know, um, the early production process of that one. And I am writing book five. So the series goes on. Excellent. Excellent. Well done. Thank you very much, Michelle. And thank you for bringing us this uh, information about all your books. I've really appreciated having you on Dead to Rights. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. It was fun. I want to thank Michelle Cox for joining us this week on Dead to Rights. We've been lucky to have so many fabulous authors of every genre on the show. Back in March, we interviewed my good friend and an award-winning author, Catherine Astolfo. Today, for your listening pleasure, I bring you Catherine's short story titled Family Recipe from EFD1, Starship Goodwords, Carrick Publishing, 2012. So now, settle those earbuds into place Lean back or tie up your walking shoes and get ready for a fantastic story by Catherine Astolfo. Family Recipe by Catherine Astolfo Years after Pom Pom disappeared, the trunk arrived at my door. That afternoon I had Skyped the girls, young women really, who I can tell I'm not stupid, are a little frustrated that their mother is still hovering. Their faces satellited in and out of the screen, frozen in cyberspace from time to time, but even through the cosmos I could feel the impatience. After two thoroughly dissatisfying conversations from different parts of the world, I went out and stood on the front porch, shivering, sneaking my last, once again, cigarette. I didn't want any of my coats to give me away by soaking in the smell, so I was freezing to death as I inhaled the final, I swore it was, blessed smoke. Just as I sucked out the last possible drop of nicotine, a delivery truck slid its way into the fortunately empty driveway and skidded to a halt. At first, the cargo resembled a small coffin, and I was not sure it was for me but my formal title was clearly marked on top, and once I'd proven my identity to the pimpled delivery boy, he left it in my front hall. I tried twice to break open the thin wooden bars and facade in which the trunk had been delivered. Deciding to use something more efficient than my hands, I stopped by the bar, filled my glass with vodka and orange juice, the juice because it was still early in the day, and proceeded to the garage. There I found a crowbar, an item I hadn't known existed in the house of a politician whose hands, to my knowledge, had never even held a hammer. 
Back at the carton, I hacked away at the veneer until I uncovered a deep brown chest. Exquisite engravings graced every face of the rectangular box. Beautiful figures in long, sinuous gowns, male and female, danced through carved gardens from panel to panel. Their faces were slightly oriental, long hair flowing over shoulders or twisted into buns. Flowers, vines, and stems intertwined over the lid and corners. An upturned brass handle sealed with a rusty combination lock grinned invitingly. The little trunk stood proudly on four brass claws. Astonished by the craftsmanship of the trunk, but curious about the contents, I returned to the garage. Once more hunched over with a tool in one hand and a newly refreshed drink in the other. The pliers would not normally be strong enough to crack a lock, but this one was old and rusty and snapped after only a few minutes of muscled determination. A cloud of dust sprang into the air as I lifted the lid, forcing me to gulp quite a lot of my screwdriver in defense. I got down on my knees and peered into the depths of the chest. It appeared to be mostly empty. A shoebox, a bunch of letters bound together with a withered elastic band, an old photo album were its only contents. I went for the photos first. New drink in hand, I carried it to my reading chair, switched on the light, and opened it to the first page. And there, in the small black and white images, was my grandfather. Pom-Pom was a tall, stately man when he was young. His hooked nose made him look rather patrician. I knew from experience that he had sandy, flyaway hair and startling blue eyes, but of course these were not apparent in the colorless photos. There were dozens of the little squares, mostly of my father as a baby. It was probably that thing you do with your first child. Take pictures of as many poses as you can, because you find them so fascinating. And then fail to do with your second. Little did Mary know, of course, that my father would be her only child. Whenever he appeared in the pictures, which was not often, I figured he was likely the photographer. Pom-Pom never smiled, yet I remember his infectious, toothless grin as he opened the door to his suite whenever we visited. Perhaps happiness only came later in life. Perhaps he was simply suspicious of human imagery. Dad never talked about his parents. His mother had died very young, he'd said. He only remembered Veronica, Mary's second cousin, who had raised him without benefit of a man. By the time Dad was old enough to commit memories for conscious retrieval, Pom-Pom was long gone. When Pom-Pom came back into our lives, my father was not interested in a relationship. He and my mother had moved to Toronto, and not once did he return for a visit to Ottawa while his father was there. He made me promise that I would have nothing to do with the old man, and I swore I would not. 
However, I was far too intrigued to stay away, and so began a series of clandestine visits to the YMCA on Argyle with my two little girls in tow. Each time, Pom-Pom would greet us with that sideways smile, eyes dancing, and offer a small surprise for my daughters, a candy or a chocolate, and regale us with stories about his lifetime of adventures. He'd been all over Canada, from the east to the west, he said, and even to the far north. He described his travels in detail, told funny stories about the people he'd met, or had us in stitches. Okay, mostly I was the one laughing while the girls wiggled and fretted impatiently over some of his antics. My daughters, possibly because they didn't see them very much, never mentioned these outings to their father or maternal grandfather. Or perhaps they knew from my nervous and secretive aura that pom-pom was a taboo topic. Still chuckling at the memories of pom-pom's stories, I had just refilled my drink. No orange juice needed. It was getting on in the day. When the telephone rang... Without looking at the call display, I knew who it was. James's secretary usually called around this time. He won't be home for dinner. They're tackling a sensitive issue. They'll just grab something later. Might be very late. He says don't wait up. They'll be holed up at the Brook Street in some king-sized bed. Okay, so the last part Hillary never said, but I could always sense the apology in her voice. Hillary had to know that James and his personal assistant were having an affair. I know I did. The only reason he hadn't left me for Elizabeth was his career. James Asquith Smith was the quintessential squeaky-clean, honest, upright politician whose platform was always full of righteous indignation at the collapse of societal morals. Therefore, despite the fact that he was probably in love with Elizabeth and no longer had sex with his wife, James would stick around as long as I did. If I left him, he could play the card of being bereft and wronged. So far, however, we were at a standoff. Our daughters were in their first and second years of university, respectively, so I had no real reason to stay. I was simply too angry and too selfish to go. James was the one who'd betrayed me. Why should I be the one to move out? Sometimes I seethed with my hatred of him. Sometimes I grieved for what I had lost. I did nothing around the house. I hired people. I sat and watched films. I shopped. I went to spas. I figured I could hang on longer than he could. In fact, I found out about James and Elizabeth on one of my many shopping trips. I was in one of those fancy new stores in the Rideau Center, the kind that have co-ed change rooms. I happened to be standing nearby, fingering a silky blouse I wanted, when Elizabeth Fleming came out of the change room. I was about to wave and say hello when I noticed her face, a strange reddish flush of the cheeks, a slight cat-got-the-mouse smile radiant eyes. Instinctively, I ducked behind the dress racks. Two minutes later, out walked the Honorable James Asquith Smith. Flushed cheeks, victory grin, luminous eyes. 
Now I knew at last what writers meant when they said your heart squeezed, your stomach flipped, the blood pounded in your head. I felt nauseous because I knew exactly what they had been doing in those change rooms. It was one of the naughty things that James used to like to do with me. Yes, I had known, really, in that secret part of myself that doesn't like to admit the obvious. The late nights, the missed dinners, the special care he took when he dressed for work. That new cologne. But I'd hoped, I guess, that James might be having a quick fling with someone who didn't really count and therefore wouldn't last. Elizabeth Fleming, however, was dangerous. Beautiful, confident, brilliant, witty. I'd actually liked her. It was three years now and counting, longer than it had taken the Romans to scale Masada, but I was certain that I could hold out longer than the little Jewish community had. Once I'd murmured my thanks for letting me know to Hillary, I settled in for a long look at Pom Pom's old artifacts, actually thrilled that I would have the entire afternoon and night to plow through this adventure alone. The fact that my husband was out screwing someone else, well, I decided to let that go for now. Besides, I had my own screwdriver right here, I joked with myself, and myself found me quite amusing. Six years ago, my dad had been killed in a car accident in Toronto, just two years after Mom had died from cancer. So, as an only child, I was pretty much by myself, especially now that the girls were grown up. No one else would be interested in this history, but I'd always found family trees fascinating. Maybe that's because I didn't have much of a one. I was excited by the prospect of finding some long-lost relatives. Perhaps I had several aunts and uncles who had passed away and left me hordes of cousins. Maybe one of them was a rich, successful lawyer, or even better, a private detective, one who could get access to the VIP suite at the Brook Street Hotel. Unfortunately, the photographs were merely pictures of Pom-Pom and my father and Mary, one after another in very pedestrian poses. Pom-Pom was always slightly out of focus in these pictures, unsmiling and formally dressed. Perhaps my grandfather had left to tour the country in his grief over his wife's death and had never remarried. In fact, there wasn't one single clue about other possible broods or my lawyer-private-eye cousin. And in the few years that I'd known him while he lived at the YMCA, he'd never answered any of my questions. He'd just give me that quizzical, eyebrows-raised, sparkling-eyed look and go on with stories about places called Saint-Louis de Haha, Harry Hill, and Pecker's Point. Bored looking at the same pictures over and over, I reached for the letters. The elastic band snapped in my fingers. I could tell right away that the missives had been written in Pom-Pom's shaky hand, which meant they'd been penned when he was older. They were all addressed to my father, and they were all stamped, returned to sender, with a post office box as the address. I started to hum the old Elvis song as I refilled my glass. No need to make dinner. 
so I grabbed a handful of chocolate-covered almonds and some nuts. I figured I wasn't invading anyone's privacy since Dad is gone, so I opened up the earliest piece of correspondence. They were only two lines, followed by Love Pom Pom. Hmm, it must have been a nickname given to him by Dad, perhaps a twist on Papa. The same two sentences were repeated on every one of thirty letters. I should never have told you. Please forgive me. What had he told my dad, and why did Pom-Pom need forgiveness? When I studied the dates, I could see that the timing matched the years that I'd been visiting Pom-Pom at the Y. Slightly frustrated now, I reached for the shoebox. Once again, dusty remains forced me to drink a little more than normal in one gulp. There was exactly one piece of thin, yellowing paper inside, rolled up like a papyrus scroll. On the sheet, again in that shaky hand, were nine words. Flory, I figure you'll know what to do with this. Only my dad and Pom-Pom had ever called me Flory. Everyone else stuck with Florence, or resorted to Flo, so the name was reserved for that paternal side. But Flory had absolutely no idea what to do with this. In fact, I wondered what Pom-Pom even meant by this. A few photos, letters that repeated the same obscure message, and a cryptic note. How on earth was I to know what to do? I sat in the circle of lamplight, sipped my vodka, chewed on chocolate and nuts, and tried to think. Outside, the sun was beginning to set over the Ottawa River, spilling orange over the carvings on the trunk. Dust motes floated in the rays, causing the figures to appear to dance. I glanced out the window and followed a flock of geese as they rode across the dusky sky, practicing their V's. Then I studied the chest again. It sat very stately on those claw feet, its lid thick and heavy, its body a rectangular box. I peered inside once more. A platform of pine or oak had held the small pickings that I'd just been through, but as I gazed at the shelf, I realized that this was exactly what it was, a shelf. Between the bottom and the top, there appeared to be a great deal more space. There must be a false bottom. Once again, I was down on my hands and knees in front of the trunk. I searched the panel of wood with my hands, trying to find a wedge that I could use to pry it up. In one of the corners, I felt a small opening, but I was unable to squeeze my finger inside. This time, I used James' gold-plated letter opener, inscribed with his name, and congratulations on your win as a tool, and up popped the thin shelving. I saw a large scrapbook, about twelve by twelve, bursting with yellowing papers and thick items that made it bulge dangerously, and a small plastic recipe box. Very carefully, I lifted the bundle up and out of the trunk, slammed the lid with my hip, and lowered the prizes onto a flat surface. 
Sitting on the floor, nuts and vodka to calm the excited fluttering of my heart, I began to explore the treasures. I started with the scrapbook first, because I wasn't at this particular time in my life feeling very domestic. On the first page, a newspaper item was affixed to the black surface. Over time, the glue had smeared through the thin parchment and spoiled some of the copy, but I could still make out most of the words, and therefore the gist of the story. A tiny black-and-white picture of a smiling, attractive woman accompanied the column. Mary O'Reilly Byrne, wife of Alfred Byrne, had been murdered in her own church. She was a frequent volunteer housekeeper at Sacred Heart, where she swept the floor, cleaned the pews, and dusted the statues. When the priest entered the church that evening, Mary was lying dead on the altar steps, stabbed in the heart. A good place to be stabbed in the heart, Sacred Heart, I thought, feeling more than a little silly for some reason. I took another sip to fortify myself. There were all kinds of accolades listed for Mrs. Byrne, which I skipped over because I had no idea who she was and therefore could not feel sorry for the people who had spouted them. Her family had been too distraught to speak to the reporter. The murder had taken place in St. Mary's, Ontario. The next page was another newspaper item, this one quite small, but at least unmarked. An eyewitness to the case of Mrs. Mary Byrne, murdered on the altar of her own church, Sacred Heart, reported seeing an elderly woman entering the building around the time of her death. We are asking this person to call Sergeant McCallum at police headquarters, as she may be instrumental in assisting with our inquiries. Page 3 was another newspaper item altogether. Nothing more about Mary. This report was from Mission, British Columbia. I couldn't find a date. Mrs. Ruby Lamont had been murdered at a deserted bus stop in the middle of the night. Again, lots of praise was heaped on Mrs. Lamont by the people who had known and loved her, along with confusion as to why she would be sitting at that particular bus stop at that particular hour. It was quite a distance from her home, and she had left her husband and children sleeping peacefully, unaware that Mom had flown the coop. Ruby, don't take your love to town, I hummed out loud. Curiously, Ruby had been stabbed in the heart, too. Pages 4, 5, and 6 were also columns on the death of married women in small towns across Canada. Why on earth did Pom Pom own this kind of macabre collection? Margaret Phelps had died in the field behind her house, just as she was bringing in some corn for dinner. Some place called Delmas, Saskatchewan. The date was listed as June 3, 1963. Vera O'Malley was murdered in Digby, Nova Scotia, walking along a path in the woods near her home. Constance Haynes was killed in Johnson's Crossing, Yukon Territory, while on a hunting trip. All five women were highly admired by their friends. Every single one's death had so upset her family that they would not speak to reporters. Every one of the deceased had been stabbed in the heart. In all, they had left 15 children motherless. 
I began to have a strange feeling in my stomach that was not helped along by the nuts and the vodka. I had to do something, so I switched to red wine and chips and dip and kept reading. The pages following those newspaper reports held a cornucopia of photos, all of people and places I'd never seen. Not all glued in place. Some of the pictures fell out onto my lap. Smiling, attractive women bouncing small babies on their knees or standing beside toddlers, protective hand on the children's shoulders. Pom-Pom had also kept all kinds of other memorabilia, cafe napkins, bus tickets, leaves, a feather, a tiny piece of animal fur. I flipped back to the newspaper portraits of the murdered women. There was definitely a resemblance, I thought. This one in the album could be Constance. This one, good old Ruby. But the imagery was so faded and obscure, both in the newspapers and the scrapbook, that I couldn't be certain. Suddenly, I felt compelled to return to the original photo album. I could swear I saw a resemblance to my father's mother in the smiling visage of Mary Byrne. Had Pom-Pom's first wife, my grandmother, been murdered by a serial killer? Had Pom-Pom followed this murderer all over Canada, recording his deeds? Perhaps he'd had suspicions but no proof. Perhaps Pom-Pom had taken matters into his own hands and put an end to the culprit. But then I stopped on that fantasy. Pom-Pom's name had not been Alfred Byrne. As far as I knew, he was Alfred, but my dad's last name was Sullivan. So I assumed. Just then the telephone rang again. I looked at the clock and sighed. My life was so predictable. Wednesdays at 7 p.m. on the dot, my friend Kara, my telephone friend at least, since she and I never got together except by this method, would call. Kara is an enormous woman in more ways than one. She is hugely fat, loud, and completely self-absorbed. She also inherited her father's insurance company, so naturally James and I are insured to the hilt. I can't really explain why I listen to her, except to say that my life in the last three years has been that boring. We spend two hours at the least on the phone, or at any rate, connected by the wire. Most of the time I put her on speaker and did my exercises, muttering, uh-oh, now and then, so she'd know that I was still there. Not that she really cared. Once I'd even taped my responses so I could get ready for one of James's charity events. This evening, however, I plopped back into my chair with the scrapbook on my lap, my chips and dip and a bottle of very good red wine from James's cellar on the side table so I didn't have to move. In fact, I was able to use the speaker method and continue to scrutinize the scrapbook. After a few minutes, however, Kara was frightened out of her mind when instead of ah-ah, I hollered holy shit into her ear. At the back of the scrapbook, I had found six old-fashioned driver's licenses, passports, and social insurance number cards. The pictures showed clearly that Alfred Byrne, Albert Lamont, Alan Phelps, Alan O'Malley, and Alfred Haynes were all the men I'd known as Pom-Pom. 
The man I had assumed was Alfred Sullivan, my father's biological parent. No wonder my dad had never wanted to talk about his mom. She'd been murdered. Not only that, I once again could no longer ignore the obvious. My grandfather had been a serial killer. After I apologized to Kara for swearing so loudly, she'd actually heard it through her incessant gabbing, I let the scrapbook slide to the floor and thought while my friend finished her narrative. How could Dad not have told me? I took my little girls to see this man, for God's sake. I forgot for a moment that I'd never told my father about those visits. He had to have known something bad. It was the only explanation for the letters. I never should have told you. Please forgive me. A shiver ran down my spine and I twitched, trying to hug myself out of the shock. I pictured my little girls around eight and ten, sitting in that room with that man. I imagined his twisted grin as he stuck the knife into the hearts of women who loved him and who had borne his children. It was very dark now, and when I glanced up at the picture window, all I could see was my pale face reflected in the glass. Suddenly, the quiet house was not so quiet. I heard groans, scrapes, and ghouls. A small animal was rustling at the back door. A dog whined in the distance. I plopped back into my chair, pulling the soft throw around me, and stared at the scattered pages on the floor. Sipping my wine, which I now needed rather than wanted, I began to contemplate the enormity of my discovery. It would be easy enough to find my father's birth records. Had he been born, David Byrne? Pom-Pom's cousin Veronica had been Sullivan. Perhaps Dad had taken her name instead. What would the right Honorable James Asquith Smith do if he discovered he was married to the granddaughter of a serial killer? What would this information do to his career? He would certainly still be a media darling, but of a very different nature. The more I drank, the more I thought, the more an idea began to form deliciously. Realistically, the media could ruin my life too, and I loved my house, my possessions, my privileges far too much to give them up, not to mention my girls and how this infamy could stain the rest of their lives as well. Obviously, I had to keep the secret, though it did occur to me that I could use it to threaten James give up Elizabeth, or I'll reveal my heritage to the world. Thoughts running wild, I picked up the small plastic box, incongruously marked Family Recipe. Inside, each of the index cards held one direction, carefully and clearly printed. How to make a perfect murder, it began. One, Always have an airtight alibi. Two, always dress as the opposite gender in case an eyewitness sees you. Three, always have your getaway planned. Four, obtain extremely good fake identification, even if it's expensive. Five, always use a name close to your original, such as Al. Six, be sure to be the beneficiary of a large insurance claim. 7. Disappear to a small town far from the current one. 
This didn't seem like much of a recipe to me, I thought, merely the ravings of a maniac to whom I was accidentally related. Once again, in that secret part of me that has to finally face up to the obvious, I knew what Pom Pom had meant by, Flory, you will know what to do with this. I picked up all of the paraphernalia and threw it into the fireplace. I lit a match and watched as every bit of evidence of my grandfather's perfidy curled into ash. Except the plastic recipe box, of course. My life returned to normal after that. Boring, predictable, dissatisfying, but more than comfortable. Spas and shopping, television and telephone, watching cleaners scrub the house or redecorate, waving goodbye and hello to the geese, following the moods of the river. Until the night police showed up at my door, thereafter my life irreversibly changed. Ottawa Herald, Thursday, July fifteenth, two 2008 Beloved politician murdered. Highly celebrated Member of Parliament, the Right Honourable James Asquith Smith, was found murdered last night at the Brook Street Hotel, along with his personal assistant, Elizabeth Fleming. An eyewitness, a waiter at the hotel, reported seeing an old man entering the suite around 7.45 p.m. He was stooped, but of average height, had long white hair and wore large glasses. Shortly afterward, the same waiter delivered a prearranged room service order to the suite. Finding the door open, he went in and discovered the bodies. The couple had both died instantly from a stab wound to the heart. A rumor that they were found dead in a king-size bed has been dismissed. According to several sources, the MP and his PA often used the Brook Street Hotel for highly sensitive issues. The MP's wife, Florence Asquith-Smith, denied any hints that her husband may have been having an affair. Elizabeth and James were strictly business associates, she declared. Added their secretary, Hilary Barnes, my employers often used the Brook Street Hotel to work late at night as it was private and close to both their homes. The family's lawyer told the media that Mrs. Smith is distraught and has been sequestered in her home with the couple's two daughters. No further statements will be issued at this time. Police have assured the public that they will find the man responsible for this terrible, tragic crime. Mrs. Asquith Smith is not a suspect, Chief Superintendent Mark Webster said, responding to a media query. She was at home on the telephone with a friend. Cara Miller, daughter of the late millionaire Robert Miller of Miller Assurity, told The Herald that she was indeed the friend who was talking to Florence from 7 to 9 p.m., which removed Mrs. Smith from the crucial time frame. Not that my dear friend Flo would be capable of such a thing, Miss Miller declared, but I know for a fact that she couldn't have done it. She was at home talking to me. Mrs. Miller has given several interviews to the media and plans to write a book. The search for the man responsible for the crime continues. A sketch has been made public. Anyone with information is asked to call Chief Superintendent Mark Webster. Funeral services for the public and the family will be announced shortly. A fairly short time later, 
I found a lovely, somewhat similar house on the ocean in Victoria, British Columbia, where I now live my quiet, satisfying life. A small brown chest sits in the front hall in a place of honour. Deep inside I have placed a new scrapbook with new newspaper clippings and, of course, the small plastic recipe box. The End And that has been Family Recipe by Catherine Estolfo. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the story as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. I really want to thank Catherine Astolfo for this excellent story. If you're a published author and would like to be featured on Dead to Rights, email me at carrotpublishing at rogers.com and mention Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We'll be happy to hear from you and there are still a couple of slots open for 2018. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. On Twitter, we're listed as at Dead to Rights Pod. Don't hesitate to reach out to us anytime. You can find me, Donna Carrick, at donnacarrick.com or on Facebook under Donna Carrick or Carrick Publishing. My Twitter handle is at Donna underscore Carrick or at Carrick Pub. My better half, Alec Carrick, is at alexcarrick.com and that's Alex with an X or he can be found on Facebook. You can tweet to him at Alex underscore Carrick. Our Dead Trites theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, yes, our very own son, as is all other story-scoring music. You can tweet with Ted at Ted Carrick or follow his YouTube channel at Ted Carrick Music. Be sure to tune in next week when we'll feature an interview with B.R. Statham, author of A Taste of Old Revenge, and There Are No Innocents, among many other great titles. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. It's always a pleasure to have you here at Dead to Rights, the podcast. Dusty road, a man alone His vital signs go on hold And I don't know what you've been told But the years have turned my eyes gold And I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rock.